Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial issues and answer your health and wellness-related concerns, ranging from nutrition and exercise to sex and prescription drugs. I'm here with co-host Dr. Shetha Chakraborty, who's a national media risk expert, as seen on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and more. But don't just think this hour is all science as usual. After four seasons as a regular guest and food scientist on The Dr. Oz Show, Dr. Taylor Wallace, who the Huffington Post calls the nation's premier food and nutrition guru, will help me loosen lips and spill tea with special guests that you won't want to miss. Let's jump straight into today's show. Today we have a very special guest, a very good friend of both Shetha and mine, uh, a food futurist. Uh, Jack Bobo is the CEO at Futurity. He also has a recent TEDx talk, Why We Fear the Food We Eat. Welcome, Jack. Great. It's really fun to be here. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Now, we informally chat all the time. So Taylor and I kind of have an idea of what it is that you do and how you have this title of food futurist. But you can imagine those listening might never have heard this combined term before. So what is a food futurist? What's it take to get there? Yeah, well, uh, a futurist is somebody who's looking down the road, but it's not really what people think. People think that a futurist is trying to predict what the future is. But the goal of a futurist is not to predict what the future is, it's to look at what the future could be. And then I work with clients, small food tech startups, big food brands, to think what are the possible futures, identify the future they want, and help them to get there. Could you be writing a science fiction novel on this perhaps sometime soon? <laughs> Could you give me a rich husband? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we're already three articles into that uh, science fiction novel right now. Tell us a little bit about it. You have a vast perspective that you can bring to the field of food. And there's so many silos even within this sector. But you've really worked across all of them from agriculture to nutrition, health, how the planet warming is also related Tell us a little bit about how you view the food sector, how you break it down, and how you're approaching writing these articles. Well, you know, food has never been more sexy than it is today. I mean, for the first time in my career, people actually care what it is that I do. And so it's an exciting time to be in the field. Uh, what I found, though, is that when I, I started talking about uh, food communication and regulation, what I really encountered was all these companies have all this angst about what does the future of food really mean for their products, for their companies. And so I started working with them to help them understand not just the trends that are in the headlines, because that's what everybody else sees, but how do you look at the forces that shape the trends, because that's how you get ahead of the trends. And so that's what I work with clients to try to look around the corner so that they can be prepared for what's coming next. So you really started with agriculture. This was what you were doing at the State Department for a long time. And nobody really understands it better than you do. Let's give our listeners a little bit of insight into what really is the future of agriculture. Let's talk about those trends. Yeah, so I, I spent 13 years at the U.S. Department of State doing global food policy. I traveled to 50, 60 countries. And by the time I left, my only job was giving speeches. So I just traveled around the world talking about the future of food, the role of science. Back in New Zealand in August, and I was the keynote speaker for the Borgato Wine Festival, 
I mean, what more fun can you now have? Now, that's what kind of gig I need. I know. <laughs> We're telling you, all things food. He covers all things food and drink. Yeah, they pay me to fly around the world and drink wine. I love it. That is exactly what yeah. kind of job I need. If that, if that was my job, I'd be a millionaire by That's now. That's kind of what we're doing right now. Let's just be <laughs> it honest. Well, so, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about in terms of the future of food. You know, there, there are exciting things like cellular agriculture, which is kind of lab-grown meat. We've got plant-based burgers that are in the news every day. Uh, we've got new digital technologies that are allowing the livestock and dairy industries to do things that they were never able to do before. And we've got people that are actually intentionally eating bugs so it's a dynamic yeah. world out there which i will say as a nutrition scientist bugs are a complete protein and a great protein source they're balanced in amino acids and it is actually a sustainable protein um, but i want to jump into cellular agriculture you know this has gotten really hot it's still too expensive right now but guessing in the near future the technology is going to get more and more affordable is cellular agriculture going to replace traditional livestock and dairy yeah, I mean, you know, some people have talked about how in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, there's going to be a collapse of the dairy industry, the livestock industry. And, and I've heard that. But what I think people forget is that we need to double protein by the year 2050 in order to meet the growing demand. That's going to be another trillion dollar business opportunity. Right. So if you can imagine cellular agriculture, plant-based growing to a trillion dollar industry within the next 30 years, that still wouldn't impact a single dairy producer. Right. And the chances of that are really small. And so these are opportunities because there's a demand, but they're not gonna replace what's already there. Right, so I should context for our listeners. When I talk about cellular agriculture, what I mean is you take a cell line from an animal, like a cow, and so you're not euthanizing the animal, but you're taking a cell line and then from there, you're replicating the cells and growing the cells kind of in a test tube, and you're making an actual meat product based on that. I, I think they would say you're growing it in fermentation more like beer right. than in a test tube. Right, right. <laughs> and the reason these industries even are coming into existence is because there's a real need to address the increasing population on the planet. So this is what you just referred to, Jack, and I just want to emphasize it's a trend that we all agree on, that the planet is increasing in number of people, and in addition, the planet is warming. Combine these two trends, we need to come up with new innovations that we can put forward as part of the toolkit to address food production to be able to feed the amount of people that will be on the planet. Would you say that's accurate? Are there other trends you would also include? Yeah, I, I think one, we absolutely need to do everything more sustainably, improve nutrition in the future. But we shouldn't forget how far we've come. In 1980, we used twice as much water to produce a kilogram of beef. In 1980, we used, there was 60% more erosion to produce that kilogram of beef. There were 35% more greenhouse gases emitted. So by every single measure, farmers today are wildly more productive than they were in the past. But it's not about things are bad and getting worse. Things are good and getting better, but not fast enough because of the challenges you mentioned. Right. A lot of, you know, when we talk about the controversy around global warming and the impact of agriculture, I don't think people really understand sustainability means profitability for the farmer, right? If you use less water, you use less resources, you preserve the soil, you know, that all equals profit for the farmer. Yeah, absolutely. I think instead of talking about sustainability as a journey or as a destination, we should talk about it as a journey. Mm -hmm. And farmers have been on that journey for the last 50 years only recently are consumers getting on that journey with them. Right. So in addition to cellular agriculture as being part of this toolkit, 
What do we think about plant-based? You mentioned a few. So we have plant-based uh, proteins. We have bugs. Let's try and I still want to keep my food down and look forward to dinner tonight, but we'll get into it because it is important source of protein. But let's talk a little bit about plant-based proteins. Yeah, well, you know, it, last year, 2019, you know, according to some, was the year of the vegan. Mm -hmm. And so plant-based took off, Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, and others. I think those things are going to continue to grow. You know, if you look at the market cap of companies like Beyond Beef, you know, they're, they're really tremendous. But I think we also need to recognize that there's a tension there, too, because consumers want more natural food. They want less processing. And so there are these pressures, tensions that are coming. If I'm looking forward just over the next year and somebody asks me, well, what's the future of the plant-based? Is it going to sort of overwhelm everything? I think one of the challenges they have is that by the end of 2020, there are going to be a thousand products in your grocery store, all labeled plant-based. Right. And, you know, nobody's going to get a headline by having the 15th plant-based burger. You know, they're going to have to be plant-based and tasty. They're going to have to be plant-based and healthier. They're going to have, you know, you're going to have to have something right. else there. And let's be real, 99% of them taste like chalk. Has anyone tried the Impossible Burger yet? I have tried the Impossible Burger. And it tastes like chalk? Um, you know, it didn't taste like chalk. I actually tried it down the street at Z Burger here in Washington, D.C. And it was a... Now it, stalkers know where to find you? Well, you know, it was a... No, not really. Um, because it's the only time I would try it because I'm 100% beef. Um, but it was the best vegetarian burger I've ever had. But, you know, they also smothered it in a chipotle mayo, so it covered up a lot of the taste of what you would get from a vegetarian burger. And which, as a nutrition scientist, that's another kind of angle I have, is that it's really not healthier than a regular beef burger. In fact, it has a lot more sodium, and, you know, you have to put a lot of condiments like chipotle mayo on it to kind of give that flavor for it to be acceptable to consumers. So I'm not so sure it's not any healthier just because it's plant-based. Yeah. And I mean, the first time I had it was actually at the Impossible Foods facility out there in San Francisco. So I went in there and somebody literally mixed up the ingredients in a bowl and then fried up a burger for me from the ingredients. And oh, so, wow. you know, I thought it was a pretty good burger. I mean, so I think that it's going to meet a new need that there are some people who are going to love right. it. Some people who were eating beef may switch over. But you know what? Most people in the world need more animal protein. Right. So it's just not an either or a conversation. You know, it's going to be, you know, both of these things have a place in our future. Well, and if you talk about sustainability, you know, we always talk about legumes like soy being, you know, more sustainable. But if you think the amount of protein that you get from a batch of soybeans, it's very minimal, right? I mean, soy does not have a lot of protein. So to feed the world, I mean, if you're thinking about sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, places in Central and South America, that's a lot of soy. I mean, we really, you know, agriculture could really overtopple itself. I mean, think of deconstruction of the rainforest right now in Brazil just to plant soybeans for Europe. Yeah. And you would almost have to times that by 10 to, you know, get the amount of protein that you would need from soy. So what does this look like, Jack? Because I can imagine some listeners are screaming into their computers and they're like, but also livestock and agriculture, animal agriculture is equally hurting the planet. It and, is. And then there's the moral um, argument that many make, right? right? So the combination of both of those, is there a case to be made for taking that market share away from animal agriculture? What does the landscape look like? And where is it fair across the board? It's easy to say that people should eat less animal products, but you know what? People have been saying that since the 1970s, and the number of people that are vegan or vegetarian has remained similar. So it's very hard to change human behavior. 
And so the best way to change it is just to give people an amazing product. So rather than try to, to make the moral argument or something else that, you know, we need to make everything better every single day. But when it comes to, you know, livestock production and others, you know, Taylor already mentioned this, that, you know, Europe has focused on low productivity agriculture. They're trying to protect their small farms and the, the lifestyle there. But the result is that they have to import 70% of their animal feed. And the number one country sending the, that product to Europe is Brazil. So Europe has exported its agricultural footprint to the most biodiverse country on the planet. That's a choice and a consequence. So if we're really you know, concerned about decreasing the impact of agriculture, countries like the United States and regions like Europe need to do everything within their power to be more efficient and effective right. and produce those products. Right. It sounds really great when you're not the one, but <laughs> you exporting it doesn't solve right. the situation. Well, and it's important to remember that 40% of Americans within the last year have not had the money they needed to buy the food they wanted. Right. So, this, you know, food may be cheap, but there's still a lot of people out there suffering. Right. So you brought up animal feed. I think one of the biggest urban myths out there is that when you, when you are a country that is anti-genetically modified products, that means your animal feed is also not genetically modified. European Union as a uh, conglomerate comes to mind. Let's debunk that, please, with the three of us here, because it's one of the things that I think really surprises people, listeners generally. When you are talking about eating non-genetically modified foods, it does not mean that the entire supply chain up until getting that product was free of genetic modification. You are the master at this, Jack. You know this inside out. Please, let's clear the air here. Right. Well, you know, I, I spent, like I said, 13 years at the U.S. Department of State having these conversations. And what was interesting to me is that I would go to Europe and I would point out that they're importing 70% of their animal feed from Brazil and it's 100% GMO. Europe is the second largest importer of GMOs in the world after China. Right. And that just like blows the mind of a lot of people in Europe because they feel like they've rejected GMOs. No, their farmers don't get to use the technology but they get to compete against the technology. So European farmers have the worst of all worlds. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about the example that you use often in your talks, which I, I love watching the audience reaction when you present it. Um, we're talking about, I don't, I don't want to give it away. What do you call it? Oh, the Chinese. Oh, Chinese gooseberry. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I always ask audiences is I ask them, you know, how many people have eaten a Chinese gooseberry? And maybe like one or two hands go up. And then I say, well, how many people love to try a Chinese gooseberry? Maybe a couple more hands go up. And then I say, you know, I'm really surprised people around here don't like kiwi fruit and where, you know, and everybody laughs. But, you know, how we talk about things matters. Right. And, you know, when it comes to kiwi fruit, back in 1910, some intrepid kiwi traveled to China, found the Chinese gooseberry, brought it back to New Zealand, created a new variety, and most importantly, rebranded it. And the rest is history. Because when it's a Chinese gooseberry, it's a hairy fruit. But when it's a kiwi, it's cute and fuzzy. See, and that's critical. And the reason I brought it up yeah. is because had we just talked about genetically modified food slightly differently, framed it differently, we might not get the uproar and the pushback that we're getting. This public panic really stems from really a perception around genetically modified foods as being unnatural, mm -hmm. as being something that we have created and that we don't really have a grip on. And therefore, they're scared irrationally because there's really no evidence at all that says that they're unsafe. But that being said, there is such a widespread public panic associated with what is considered genetically modified or Franken foods. And I love picking your brain on stuff like this because you're really good at the creative kind of framing that's necessary to 
adjust based on how people take in information and respond to information, how do we change the narrative on genetic modification, the way the kiwi is acceptable and Chinese gooseberry isn't? What about for GM foods? How do we explain to people exactly that, that in Europe you're actually losing out, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there are different ways to think about it. I mean, the, the reality is, and this is what I cover in my TED Talk, Why We Fear the Food We Eat, we have the safest, most abundant food supply in the history of the world, and people have never been more scared. And that's really unfortunate because people aren't enjoying and appreciating. And people have lived longer have. than we ever have in history Absolutely. as well. You know, <laughs> so. People are worried about chemicals in their food. And it turns out all food is made of chemicals. Right. So, you know, are, are we, we made are. of chemicals? <laughs> yeah, <What>? absolutely. <laughs> well, I know. It's like people are like, you know, I don't do DNA. And it's like, you don't do <laughs> DNA. Um, so it, it's a challenge. But I think a lot of what it really has to do with is that as our food has become safer and safer and people be, are just predisposed to worry about stuff. So they're going to find something to worry about. So people are worried about chemicals. They're worried about GM technology. They're worried about all of these things because they don't want their lifestyle to be made worse. Right. So when people say, you know, they don't want gluten, assuming they don't have celiac disease or something, what they really mean is I just, I care about the health and safety of my family. When they say I don't want GMOs, they're really saying I care about the health and safety of my family. I was teaching my intro to nutrition class today that I teach once a year. And we talk about nutrition quackery in the class. And one of the things about nutrition quackery is this might make practical sense, right? It's practical that GMOs might be bad for you because it's, quote, frankenfood. So I'm not sure if this is safe or not, regardless of the scientific evidence. You know, science can say one thing. Practicality says another thing. You know, I think a lot of consumer advocacy groups, whether it's the environmental working group, the anti-GMO campaign, they've made a lot of money on playing off practicality with consumers. People get so surprised when I say, you know, who spent more money on the anti-GMO or on the GMO debate uh, than Monsanto? Whole Foods, yeah, because right. they want you to buy their GMO apple right. for two dollars more. Yeah. You don't think Whole Foods has marketers like, and people just are like, "Oh my gosh!" The fact is that you know people have never cared more nor known less how their food is produced, and right. that's a challenge because we're so separated from food production today. You know, when I was growing up, I I didn't grow up on a farm, but we actually had cornfields that came up to our backyard. And we had a garden, but our garden had corn and peppers and green beans and cantaloupes and watermelons and strawberries. And my mother canned everything. Right. You know, I tell people, you know, we were subsistence farmers and it was all organic because we had child labor, which was me and my brothers. And so that was really tangible. But I didn't even consider that agriculture because right. I saw what real agriculture looked like. But today, you know, people just they don't even see that anymore. I mean, when the Internet got started, because, you know, I, I kind of feel like in the you know, very early 90s when the internet had just come around, you know, when Al Gore invented the internet. That was a joke. Yes. <laughs> um, I was following <laughs> intently. You know, the internet comes around and I think it's been phenomenal, right? Because, you know, you see whether it's leaders of our country saying, you know, this is what's happening in this area of the world. You can connect right on Facebook with that area of the world and you see for yourself. And I think it's brought us together. But I think it's also distanced us yeah. in so many ways because there's a lot of misinformation out there and nobody really knows how to handle that. Well, think about that. We have all of human knowledge in the palm of our hand and we've never been dumber. Right. Right. And so just having access to information is not the same as having access to knowledge. 
you know, over the last 30 years, there's just been this change where, you know, you trusted judges and the police and your teachers and others. We, we look to authority right. to answer questions, doctors and dietitians. Today, that's not where Information's they start. You know, at our fingertips. Right. They've democratized who they care they're willing to listen to. That can be a good thing because you have more ideas Absolutely. and opportunity and creativity and right. all of these things. But As a gay downside, man from Kentucky with it, where everybody <laughs> listens to the preacher, I feel like right. this is a good thing. Yeah. Well, right. this is um, a podcast in itself, but all of this is, it's there's so much positive associated with it, right? But then it's exactly that. We can pick and choose and cherry pick who we're listening to, where we're getting our information from. And then when you get opportunities for those who are experts to get the platforms and to actually have conversations with each other and then they start fighting and debating amongst yeah. themselves and they argue over decimal points and they say oh there's a risk here it's point you know zero 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 one percent somebody else argues no it's point zero 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 and you're fighting over a zero and all yeah. the audience hears is that there's a risk and so then yeah. that just perpetuates distrust and i think we are and you and i jack argue yeah. sometimes about yeah. this but i think there's been a real unfortunate loss of trust in science and scientists because of just the unnecessary dramatics that go on when they finally do get a chance to talk. Because these are people that are normally in a lab and never see the light of day, dear right. God. And now right. they have a camera pointed at them and they can't help but argue with each other rather than look at the big picture. Not all of us, okay? Not all <laughs> I know, of us. I know. You, you and I are definitely outliers in this group. But, but you're right. And this, this is actually an area where you and I disagree to some extent because you know I hear people saying that there are so many people who are anti-science today. And I don't see it. I feel like there are a lot of people who don't trust government, who don't trust big business, but they all love science. The problem is that when your values in science conflict, values always win. And it's not just true of those other people. It's true of us as well. You know, this is part of just how our brains operate. Because right. if we were to accept that other fact, we'd almost have to give up our tribe, our family, mm -hmm. and move to another group. And that is just emotionally wrenching. I think that you know we need to recognize that in many ways it's our brain that is the biggest obstacle to our happiness. Here, here. <laughs> you know, I, I I think about this all the time. The the conversation that must be going on in my brain when I go to the the movie theater and I have to decide to buy the the popcorn, and so I, I go and I say I'll have a small popcorn. They're like, well, it's only twenty five cents more for the the super big bag of popcorn. You know, my brain is like you definitely don't need 4,000 extra calories, so you should get the small one, but it's only 25 cents. Right. And right. so my brain knows I don't want it. It knows I don't need it. It knows it will make me less happy, less healthy, and less wealthy, and then it lets me buy it. But you just <laughs> cannot count on your brain for good choices. That's how Cheetos are for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna admit what that is for me. <laughs> Somebody's gonna hold that against me in the future. Okay, since we brought this up, uh, and it's unfortunately we only have a few minutes left because we really could just keep going. There's so many topics to cover here. But how do we then structure it so that people make better decisions? Is that what we need to do? Do we actually just not make that size available? Yeah, well, I think that uh, it's the environment that we live in. I mean, think about it. Back in 1960, people knew nothing about nutrition. And yet they were, in general, much healthier. You know, we know so much about nutrition and yet two thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. So it's not really an information deficit model problem. It's the environment that we live in. People didn't gain 30, 40 pounds in a year. They gained it one or two pounds year after year. And that's how we got here. But maybe if we could start to reshape our environment through smaller plates, through different size soda, all different things, 
then maybe we start to lose one or two pounds year after year. And then we find ourselves in a better place. So what you're saying is I shouldn't drink like five of those margaritas after the show today. Well, what you should do is not get one huge jug of margarita. You should, if you continue to want a margarita, go and buy a second or third. I'll get right, the Jack? skinny margaritas with just the, the lime juice. And put something around the rim you don't like to prevent you from wanting to sip it. I feel like that's oh, a good cognitive barrier. What could that be, though? I like everything. Mm. Olives? I don't like olives. Smell of a woman? No. <laughs> well, now, that'd be gross to put around a ring of a glass. Come on. But I know, you know we're supposed to be talking about it, sex and prescription drugs, but... But, you know, really, you know, it, it's, it's either moderation or it's the exercise you get. I get this question all the time. Investors, uh, you know, funds will call me and they'll say, you know, what, what healthy food should we be investing in? And my right. answer is there are no healthy foods. They're just healthy diets. Right. If you want to shape how people are producing foods, well, you need to be investing in the confectionery industry as well. Right. The best companies. And so, you know, you need to be playing in all of those spaces. So stop thinking good and bad and right and wrong. Just start thinking in terms of the total well, diet. Well, you know, I was recently down in Houston, our dietary guidelines advisory committee meeting. And what was really interesting, and for those of you all who don't know what that is, every five years, the government puts out dietary guidelines for Americans. Most of you would know that as either the food pyramid, the old food pyramid or the new my plate. Um, Which is a circle, not a triangle, by the way. I right. got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had all these keto people versus plant-based people just going to war with each other. But what the data really say is if you have good diet quality, so if you're a keto person and you're eating a grilled chicken salad or you're a vegetarian and you're refraining from eating french fries and potato chips all the time and you have good diet quality, then you have a lower risk of all these diseases and all-cause mortality. Yeah. So it's all diet. You heard it here. And I really hate to cut this conversation off. You're two of my favorite people in Washington, even you, Taylor, despite having to see each other every week. It does just keep getting more interesting because we have fantastic guests like Jeff That's Bobo why we have us. lots of wine. Yes. <laughs> Makes us more bearable to each other. No, there is love in there. But Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That's D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And at Shetha C. That's S-W-E-T-A-C. Thank you for tuning in to Risky Behavior. Until next time.